Welcome to the Jeff Larson Show, where I interview innovators and leaders. Uh, today on the show, I'm really excited to have Jim Lawler. You're going to hear all about his background in a minute. Uh, just before I do that, anybody who's interested in learning how to have a podcast show like this, please reach out to me on LinkedIn. Um, I'm actually going to be teaching a free class. There's no upsells. It's not like a sales pitch. It's kind of a what I wish someone had done for me six, seven years ago when I was starting. And then the other thing is, uh, if you're interested at all, our charity called Child Rescue Association is working on a program to help law enforcement officers get higher level skills on recruiting sources in human trafficking networks to help protect kids. And if that sounds like something that you have any interest in helping out with, we're really looking for volunteers and donors and, and help with that program. So uh, childrescueassociation.org or just reach out to me on LinkedIn. Uh, but uh, for today's episode, it's actually kind of related to our second one there. Uh, Jim Lawler, uh, I'm a big fan of your books. Uh, can you tell people a little bit about your background? Well, I joined the CIA almost by accident. I backed into it. I was in my last year of law school in 1976 at the University of Texas. And like most people in their last year of either college or graduate school or law school or business school, there's only one thing on your mind, and that's finding a job. And so I'd interviewed with a number of law firms and lo and behold, the CIA was coming to our campus to interview for attorneys for the Office of General Counsel because the CIA, like most government bureaucracies, has to have a whole raft of attorneys to keep us out of trouble and or get us out of trouble and uh, keep us legal. So I had this interview with this gentleman named Bill Wood, and Mr. Wood asked me about three minutes into the interview, he said, Jim, have you ever thought about the clandestine service? Now, this was 1976, well before the CIA really had much of a reputation. There were not television shows about it or anything like that. And my response to Mr. Wood was no, and I'm not even sure what the clandestine service is. <laughs> so he said, well, I can't tell you much about it, but I think you'd be really good at this. Unfortunately, at the time, my wife's mother was very ill, and the chances that we would move away from our home city of Houston, Texas, to Washington, D.C., and then overseas, thousands of miles from home, it just wasn't in the stars. It was not going to happen. So I returned, with some regret, I returned the application the next day, and instead of going into the CIA in 1976, I joined a family business. I don't know how many of you listeners out there are in family businesses or have been in family businesses, but I would hazard a guess that if you're no longer in a family business, it relates to the F word, family. <laughs> and I love my two brothers and my dad. I was in business with them, and I was making a lot of money, more money than I would ever again make in my life. And I learned at the age of about 25, 26, that that's irrelevant. You can make all the money in the world and still be unhappy and not have any psychological fulfillment. So after about three and a half years of my constant complaining to my dear wife, Ellen, about how frustrating it was at work, she finally said, Jim, either do something about it or stop your belly aching. So I thought, okay, well, that's good advice. So I went in and found Mr. Wood's card. I'd kept it. And I wrote him a letter. This was before Al Gore invented the internet, so I had to write a letter. <laughs> and three days later, I got a phone call at my office. And a young lady, she never used the initial CIA, but she said, 
You wrote Mr. Wood a letter a few days ago. He was wondering if you might be available next Thursday at 3 p.m. at the Holiday Inn on the Gulf Freeway. If you would be, he'll meet you in the lobby. So, again, no mention of CIA, just the name of Mr. Wood. And I said, yes, ma'am, I'll be there. And I went, and I uh, had about two hours of interview with Mr. Wood, and he said, I'd like to fly you to Washington in a couple of weeks for some testing and interviews. So two weeks later, I flew to Washington. They had a whole battery of aptitude tests and interviews with CIA officers. And I came back from that, and about three or four months later, they invited me to come back, this time for a physical and for a, a polygraph test. Some people call that a lie detector test. It's not. It's a, it's a stress detector test. And then they had begun the background checks. And about three or four weeks later, I got a phone call and said, Mr. Lawler, we'd like to offer you a position as a CIA operations officer. And can you start on such and such a date? And we agreed upon a date in February of 1980. And I packed up the car with my wife, our little cocker spaniel. My wife was pregnant with our first child. And we moved to Washington, D.C. for a job that I had absolutely no idea what it involved. Absolutely nothing. I mean, how <laughs> crazy is that to take a job and you don't even know what they want you to do? But I was so upset and, and frustrated with the family business. I thought I would take a job anywhere. I mean, make it on the planet Neptune for all I care. I just want to get out of Texas, away from the Gulf Coast. And so on February 19th, 1980, I began my career as a CIA operations officer. And then it fairly quickly dawned on me exactly what they wanted me to do. They want me to manipulate, to exploit, to subvert, to suborn people, to convince them to commit treason, to recruit foreign spies, to persuade them to betray a trust. And I found out that not only was I pretty good at it, but I enjoyed the hell out of it. And I did so for 25 years. You know, we were lucky enough on the show to have a friend of yours, uh, Doug London, on recently and, and to talk about his book, The Recruiter. And uh, that's obviously how we met, uh, just on LinkedIn, trading some comments. And then I found out you were an author. And uh, and uh, I'm a big fan of your books. Can you tell people uh, about the about your uh, your first two fiction books? Sure. And the big, big difference between Doug's and my books is his is real and mine's fiction. <laughs> uh, although the first book, Living Lies, which is about the Iranian nuclear weapons program, that's something I actually uh, pursued in my career. And I ran a number of what we call counterproliferation operations, trying to spread, stop the spread of weapons of mass destruction. And I devoted the last two-thirds of my career to basically stopping people from acquiring nuclear weapons or chemical weapons or biological weapons. And a lot of Living Lies, my first novel, is basically a thinly veiled uh, depiction of some of my actual operations. And I can't tell you what's the fiction and what's not, but it's, it's pretty realistic. And it, it is fiction. It took a year for the, our CIA Publication Review Board to uh, authorize the release of the novel because I signed a, uh, an, an oath, a commitment, when I joined the CIA that anything I ever wrote for the rest of my life 
about either intelligence operations or the CIA, I would have to submit to them so that they could judge whether there was any classified material in the story, even for nonfiction or even for fiction. They, I would have to, they have to have a right of censor. So after a year, I finally got it back and they had only objected to five little parts of it, a word here and there, a few, a phrase here and there. Uh, none of it, in my opinion, was really classified, but since it didn't affect the storyline, I thought, okay, you know, I don't want to fight this anymore. I, I had a right to appeal, but that could have taken months and I still could have lost because they have the final say on this. So I just took out the offensive phrases and words, few words that were there. But the, the book is basically about us and our negotiations with Iran. It, I started writing it back in 2015, 2016, when we were going through the first set of negotiations with Iran on nuclear weapons. And the question I posed to one of my best friends, Rolf Moat Larsen, was, what if they cheat? And so the premise of the book is we have an Iran that is eager to have all of those economic sanctions, trade sanctions, uh, relieved, and, and a U.S. administration likewise wants to have a victory, two eager parties. And so, you know, to the Iranians, he, this is a win-win situation. So they basically have a one of their Islamic Revolutionary Guard uh, guys who is part of the negotiating team for the Iranians. He volunteers to a very gullible CIA officer and what he tells the CIA officer is about 99.9% .9 true. Like he gives away all of their negotiating positions. He gives them absolute pure, the purest intelligence. I mean, it was golden. You know, it's the kind of dream come true for a CIA officer to have a, a volunteer offer you all of the negotiating positions of your team. But what he's not telling us is that Iran really has a secret program and that they've got an ace in the hole of this secret nuclear weapons program, and they want to have their cake and eat it too. They want the sanctions released, and yet they want uh, to still have a covert nuclear weapons program. Fortunately for the U.S. side, there is a CIA case officer named Lane Andrews who recruits a legitimate source on the Iranian team, and he's kind of a reluctant source. In fact, he doesn't even believe they have a nuclear weapons program. But because Lane is persuasive, and he's a good friend to this guy, he convinces him as a fail-safe. He said, okay, but if you ever see an indication of a nuclear weapons program, here's the way to contact me. At the same time, uh, the Iranians have recruited two brilliant Iranian scientists to actually run the program. And these two scientists are doing this under duress. They're doing it under pressure. And the guy who's running the program is a senior Islamic Revolutionary Guard general who had been a childhood friend. Or I, I say friend. He really wasn't a friend. He was a uh, kind of an antagonist of these two. But he's got them over a barrel for various reasons, and they reluctantly are working for him. And then finally, he kind of lowers the boom on the younger of the two and threatens to expose the fact that he's gay. And... Uh, and so this really upsets both these men. And so they contact the older brother's thesis advisor back in California. And this scientist who's a Berkeley professor also is a scientist at Lawrence Livermore National Lab. 
and he confides to the FBI agent in the lab that he now has a uh, former student who wants to tell all about the Iranian program. So I'm not going to give any more away right there, but we have now three legitimate spies and one phony dangle, and you see the competing uh, people back in Washington, which to believe, which to believe. And the administration wants to believe the phony guy because he's been proven time and time again that he's, he's the intelligence is good. And it looks like a real victory for the United States. But any time something is too good to be true, it's too good to be true. Yeah. You know, um, I think for me, I was extra interested in your book because of your background. And, you know, I, I'm thinking about the conversation we had last week or whatever it was mm -hmm. a couple of weeks ago. And, you know, you, like this program for our charity, Child Rescue, where, you know, police officers who've been taught classes on how do you get an informant kind of, you know, maybe a little bit more force, like, hey, do this or you'll go back to jail or, you know, these kind of things. But they don't necessarily get your level of classes on how do you build a friend? How do you how do you recruit a high level source who can stay in place and and provide intelligence for years to come for, you know, operation after operation. Uh, I, I, I just felt like your, your book was like, it was so great in me, a civilian who hasn't, who didn't, who hasn't played your games for 25 years, getting that glimpse behind the curtain of like, as this recruiter is, uh, you know, I'm thinking about the recruitment of that, uh, the member of the Iranian delegation, who's a good guy, doesn't think they have a weapons program stuff. And, and as he's working together, it's it's not force, it's not manipulation, it's not blackmail, it's becoming a true friend, it's finding out what this guy cares about in life and trying to find out, like, do, is this a really good guy who doesn't want our countries to go to war? And how can I help him with that desire, not how can I get him to help me with the CIA's desire? Can, can you talk about that concept? Absolutely, Jess. That's, you, you really put your finger on it. And that was my method of recruiting people. Yes, I'm looking for people under stress. And I never recruited a happy person. That's true. You don't recruit happy people. They don't need you. But in this case, you know, and in most of my cases, operationally, I tried to build the fundamental basis of any relationship, which is trust. And I tried to, uh, you know, evince that trust. I tried to look for people that I could help and people who may, you know, share my, my goals, my, uh, you know, my uh, goals in life or whatever. And so we have Lane Andrews, the CIA officer, who finds this uh, very sweet Iranian uh, member of the negotiating team. And this guy is a, uh, an expert in health physics, which is very important in criticality safety for nuclear weapons and things to make sure that you don't have two uh, masses of fissile material come together to where they can start fissioning uninterrupted. Basically, they won't explode, but they will emit a lot of radiation. And so Lane befriends the guy. They find out that they have a common love of jazz, and they start going to jazz concerts a lot. And and they become very close and legitimately close. Lane has genuine affection for Dr. Ali, who is the man that he's met. And he convinces him that he wants him to be the uh, basically the... Uh, canary in the coal mine, if you will, to tell him if, in fact, they have a, a nuclear weapons program. Because Dr. Ali is not a friend of the mullahs. He's not that religious. Uh, in fact, he had studied in the States, loved the United States, 
And had it not been for an accident back home with an older brother that was killed and he had to go back to Iran, he might have stayed in the United States and married a, a woman that he was dating. And so he's got a lot of affection for the United States and for Elaine. And they build that trust. And eventually, uh, Dr. Ali is recruited into the heart of the program, you know, not just the outside part, but the part of it, because they need a criticality expert, which is what he is. And he, to his horror, he sees that there really is a nuclear weapon uh, program, and that it's led by this General Alborzi, the IRGC general, to his horror. And he cannot imagine, absolutely cannot imagine, the mullahs in Iran having a nuclear weapon. So that gives him a lot of motivation then to work with Lane and and the CIA. And he's slowly motivated, which is the way I, I did it. Sometimes it would, it would take me months to, to recruit someone. One time it took me 11 years because in the first 10 and a half years, the uh, person that I was developing, this, uh, we were true friends. We were both um, long-distance runners. We'd go running on weekends. And the first 10 and a half years, there really was not any crack in the veneer, if I can say that, no stress that I could see. And we became so close that after three years, I was invited back to the country that he was serving in. He was a diplomat from another country to be his best man at his wedding. That's how close we were. And so I told him, on, you know, on his uh, the night before his wedding, that if he ever needed me, I had special connections in Washington. Well, time goes on. He and his new bride go off to yet another country. And then things start to fall apart for him. For one thing, his ethnic group has been replaced in his country by a new regime of a totally different ethnicity. And so it doesn't matter anymore how hard he works. He can only go so high. His, his ethnicity had been the dominant factor in his country before this, but now they were no longer on top. And this was extremely frustrating to him because he was a very competent professional. And he said, now, Jim, I can only go so high. At the same time, he went through a terrible divorce from the woman that he had married because she decided she did not want to be 10,000 miles from her home country. They'd had a child. She takes the child ups and goes back to their home, back to her home country. So he is in a absolute emotional turmoil of having a divorce, which is one of the most psychologically upsetting times of your life. At the same time, professional turmoil. He can't do anything to get ahead in his profession anymore. And he wrote me a, a note. He said, Jim, I don't know how anyone who's treated like that can give allegiance to their country that treats them so badly. I thought, okay. To me now, I see the stress. So I told him, I said, let's go. You're going to visit your um, ex-wife and see your child, your three-year-old child. Let's meet and just chat about other job opportunities. And so here it was 11 years later. I met him. I said, you know, you may have suspected my true affiliation, but you were discreet enough never to really say it. But I'm a CIA officer, and I'd like you on my team. And he said to me, Jim, he said, now you've given me something to believe in. And so he worked for us for the next five or six years and did some incredible work. And he eventually retired, resigned from his diplomatic uh, service. 
and started a business which has become very successful. And he jokingly told me a few years ago, he said, you know, Jim, I want to have a picture of you in our business with the caption, our founder. <laughs> and we still, we still write to one another and we always sign it, your brother, because I felt so, so close to him. He was, he, he in fact, he, he said it was so difficult for him on 9-11. He had been recruited a few months before that. And he said, here I was in my foreign ministry and I was watching those twin towers burn and crash to the ground. And he says, I got so emotional. He said, I was crying. And my fellow uh, diplomats there were wondering, why are you crying? There's, you know, these are Americans. It's not us. And he says, I almost gave myself away because he says, now I'm on your team. So that, wow. that's, that's basically how people can uh, psychologically balance the fact that what they're doing is espionage. They're betraying their country, but they feel like they've been betrayed first. In his case, the regime had changed. It was no longer his team. He was looking for a new team to be on, and it was my team. And that's, unless you're a pure narcissist or sociopath, you need to be able to psychologically justify something like that, a radical move like that. And by my saying, you're on my team now, I want you on my team. And he had genuine affection for me. The same thing in my, my book, In Living Lies, where Lane basically convinces Dr. Ali, I want you on my team. And Ali had been alienated by the mullahs and by this General Alborzi, the IRGC general. You know, I, I have so many questions about that. Um, you know, there, there's one principle there. I'm thinking about Lane in the book, but I know it's in real life. Doug and I talked about this when he was on the show. You know, um, we talked about this idea of like, you know, really good analysis going in and, and what, you know, how good was that assessment? Is this really the right person to be talking to, you know, and how that sets up so much? And then, and then could they engineer the bump where, where we are going to be in the same place at the same time or, you know, have this initial interaction, right? And then uh, the part I was asking Doug about is like, okay, but now what? Like, how do you get them from we met to, can we meet again, uh, ideally somewhere out of the public eye? And, and obviously, um, you know, your professionals in the book do it. And, and I, I know it's got to be based on your own expertise, but that moment where it's like, it just feels like a high pressure moment of like, hey, I have to go from meeting you to, hey, how do we, can we, can we do this again? It, it, it requires creativity, which I like. I enjoy that, you know, coming up with a plausible reason why not only how you meet someone, but then, as I jokingly say, getting that second date, getting the next time around. Now, in the case of my friend that I was referring to a moment ago in real life, uh, I just decided, you know, he's fairly new in town. I was new in town in the city that we were serving in. So I'm just going to cold call him, you know. Okay. I cold called. I said, look, I'm new at the American embassy. I noticed you had just newly arrived. How would you like to have lunch? He said, sure. So then when we were at lunch, turns out we're both long distance runners and runners typically love to have somebody else to go running with. Now, there was a big difference between him and me, unfortunately. He's a world-class marathoner and I'm not. But what that allowed me to do is I had to run and I had to shut up and, and not talk. I couldn't talk because I was breathing so hard. But then that just allowed him to basically talk and talk and talk. And he was a, um, a very sociable guy. And we built a great friendship just on our uh, common love of running. 
Now, in the book, it's a little more accidental. Dr. Ali actually backs his car into Lane's car and is, you know, worried because here's his rental car that he's put a little tiny crease in, and he's afraid that the guy behind him is going to report him to the police, you know, and this is going to make get him in trouble. And Lane looks at him and says, nah, he says, we can just rub this out and, you know, come on, you know, don't worry about it. And so that gives Lane the pretext. I mean, that's a very opportunistic thing, but things happen like that. And uh, so that's when he says, well, let's go, let's go have a cup of coffee and maybe uh, some dessert or something. Because he notices Ali's a little pudgy. He likes his sweets. And so he takes him off. And then they discover a common love of jazz. It's trying to find some commonality with somebody where you can continue that relationship. I've had, uh, I mean, another thing I did, I actually learned a lot about jazz when I had heard from some of my fellow officers who had spotted a, uh, we'll call him a target, who had incredible access to some information we needed. And these particular officers, my colleagues, could not approach this guy because they were under such deep cover that their cover status would not allow them to eventually pitch and recruit the man. But they told me some fascinating information about him. First off, they told me that he was about to go, he was going through a nasty divorce. Again, I'm a specialist in this. So much so that headquarters at one point nicknamed me Dr. Divorce. Because if you're going through a divorce, you, you know, you're emotionally wrought out, you're financially wrought out, and psychologically you're, you're adrift at sea. And so if I'm in your area and know you, and you, I know you have access to something I need, I'll become your best friend. Well, I knew that this particular target was going to be going through a divorce. I knew that he was a big lover of jazz and of Woody Allen films. And so I went to a public talk that he gave. I, we got notice that he was giving a talk and a public lecture. So I went to it. I sat right on the front row. And after he finished his talk, I went up to him. I congratulated him on what a brilliant talk it was and then asked him, if he would like to go to lunch with me at a very well-known, highly rated restaurant in a couple of weeks. I also knew that he was a fancier of fine food and wine. So he said, sure. You know, and this was a you know, Michelin-starred restaurant that everybody would be dying to get go to. So I asked him to that. And it didn't take long for us to get into a conversation of what we do in our spare time. And I said, oh, I just love to listen to jazz, you know, Miles Davis and all of the all the famous jazz artists, you know, Art Popper, uh, Art Pepper, all these guys. I just love these guys. And he's, oh, man, that's, that's some of my favorite music, too. And then, you know, in my spare time, I like to go see Woody Allen movies. And he's thinking, I've met my long-lost twin. <laughs> and so, you know, you've got this commonality, and it didn't take me long, a few months, to basically, you know, recruit him. I knew he was under financial problem, having financial problems. So I put him on a... Um, uh, you know, a uh, referral fee. I used to call it either a referral fee or a stipend to help him through a hard time. He was helping me by providing me some insights into um, some uh, highly critical negotiations we were going through. And so it was, it worked out. And like you said, Jess, earlier, uh, I never, ever used coercion. I I don't want to have a source that's basically a rattlesnake in my back seat as I'm driving down the street. I want the person that I'm working with, my covert asset, I want him to be 
him or her, because I've recruited women too, to be highly motivated, to want to please me, to look forward to the next meeting with me, to see this as a plus. And to me, that was always much more, much more important. Now, has the agency used coercion or blackmail or threats of blackmail? I'm sure we have. But I find it not so much morally reprehensible as just distasteful because I don't want that. I want people to want to do this. And you just find out that if they're highly motivated, it's, it's much better. Well, it, I mean, we're having this conversation. I was having this conversation with Doug as well as some of the other, you know, intelligence professionals that help us at Child Rescue. And, and I think it was Doug who said, like, hey, if I'm like, <laughs> if, if, uh, if I'm the kind of guy who has this person under my thumb, I don't want them coming to the conclusion that the way their life gets better is by getting rid of me. Like, we're going to be alone together. We're going to, like, as we're, like, trying to be screened from the rest of everyone, I'm also, like, alone with, with this guy. I don't want to be his problem in life. I want to be his helper in life. Absolutely. And, Doug you know, is 100% you, correct. Yes. You, you know, you talked about this idea. I, I love the visual of I don't want to have a rattlesnake in my backseat of my car, you know? And it actually it brings up a related question. Doug was talking, in, in his book, he talks about um, <laughs> recruiting this guy. But he finally goes for the pitch. He says, I have, to ask my, I have to ask my wife's permission. Can we go pick her up at the house? And he's like, what? And uh, to his credit, he gets creative and, you know, they figure out how to pick her up in a screened way where she's down the street. And, and they go to some hunker site and, and you know, testament to Doug, he gets her to, to say, yeah, our family wants to be a part of this, you know? my question is like, that seems like such a vulnerable time getting in and out of cars and like picking up the source and stuff like that. Like, it, like I know you don't want to be on the X with, with your source. Like, how do you make sure that that is like as safe as it can be when you've got to, you've got to pick up somebody or like whether you've already recruited them or you're hoping to in the future? We use a variety of uh, tradecraft skills. I mean, for one thing, we would, I, I don't want to drag uh, surveillance, the security service, to a meeting. So I'm going through what we call a surveillance detection route to make sure that I'm clean and, you know, that we would meet somewhere where it was a logical place. I had good cover stops to go to. And then I want to get the guy off the street, as you said, get him off the X. I don't, hopefully he's not under, if he's under surveillance, we've got a problem. I mean, then the whole thing's blown somehow, or he could be a dangle, meaning somebody who's been run at us, just like in my book where the uh, negotiating team guy for Iran, he's actually a volunteer, but he's not a legitimate volunteer. That happens. That's called, you know, it's a double agent operation and, uh, or a dangle, but you got to make sure by various testing that your guy is not a, a dangle. I used to meet a, a very sensitive uh, cipher clerk, a code clerk. A code clerk is basically your admin or your sysadmin, you know, the guy who is in charge of all the encrypted communications for a diplomatic facility, meaning he's got his thumb on the heart of everything classified going in and out of that embassy. And I was handling this guy, meaning I was his, his intelligence handler. I was the CIA handler. And we would meet at prearranged spots. Usually I would get there by public transportation, taking multiple stops to make sure I was clean. And then he would come from another direction. And then together we would sometimes take a taxi out 
to a location where I had a safe house, an apartment or a house that we knew was under our control and that we could, uh, we could safely meet in. So one time I've got him in the back seat with me and we're going towards our safe house in a, in a taxi cab. And suddenly not 10 feet away, he, he looks over at the side on a sidewalk and by God, it's his ambassador. And he said, Oh my God, my ambassador. And he's, he's almost going to have a heart attack because he thinks the ambassador has seen him and me together. Now the ambassador doesn't know me. And so I told him, I said, look, I, you know, you notice my appearance. I look like I could be a doctor or something. So I, I knew this guy had was, had a medical condition. In fact, he was about to have a heart attack, but I, I knew he had a medical condition. And I said, just tell your ambassador you had an appointment to go see your doctor. And then you went to see a specialist with the doctor. And I calmed him down. Now, this served as a big validation purpose for me that his legitimate horror, absolutely unrehearsed horror at being seen in my company meant he was not working with his own country, you know, their intelligence service, that he was genuinely scared. Well, it turns out the ambassador never mentioned it, never even saw the guy. I mean, he was par not paranoid. He was legitimately concerned because here's your ambassador, your boss, you know, not 20 feet from the car, and he sees you with a CIA officer, but he didn't know I was a CIF, so he didn't even see the guy that I was handling. But it was a great, a great asset validation test to see that this guy was legitimate. That makes so much sense. You know, it's, it's interesting you talk about the stops or, like, when you're driving somewhere, having your cover stops. Is that like you go to, like, you're going this way, but you stop at a gas station so that you can see if somebody else stops too? What, yeah, what's a I cover mean, stop? Yeah, absolutely. A cover stop would be a gas station, some legitimate uh, uh, place where, you know, you want to stop and buy a newspaper. Or, or I would frequently, uh, uh, in the mornings before work, if I was meeting an asset or one of our deep cover officers, we call a non-official cover officer a knock, I would frequently stop at a cafe have coffee, read the paper, see if there's anybody set up on me. And then I would go from there, take the metro or the uh, bus or something to another location. And then my colleague, the knock officer, would swing by in a car pickup and I'd jump in his car and we'd, we'd go off. But yeah, you take legitimate stops, um, things that if you're under surveillance, it looks natural and, you know, you'd have a reason for, for doing yeah, that. Yeah, I've heard... I've heard people talk about it, and, and this might be like the movie version, so you'll have to give me the real world version, but I've heard it as this idea of like, can you put your surveillance to sleep, where they just that's think what, you're just... That's what you want to do. You want to put them to sleep, even if they suspect, even if they know you're a CIA officer, that you are just doing a humdrum, routine, non-spy type work at the moment, and that... So, and you don't want to try and deliberately lose them because then you're going to piss them off and antagonize them and they'll know that you're on an intelligence mission and then they will set up all around you. They'll have what we call static surveillance, meaning people who are just sitting there and looking like a bomb or looking like an old lady and you'll pass them by. In fact, they're working for the local service and they'll report you and then there's somebody else ahead of you and some folks behind you. If they're really, really good and a lot of them are really good, you, it's going to be difficult to detect that those people. So you don't want to piss them off. You want to, you know, put them to sleep, really, just like you said, and go out at, you know, make it look like it's a real legitimate thing you're doing. 
And and when you talk about that, like <clears throat> you have the coffee, you you do these stops, these things that could seem like just part of a regular day, and then you, you know your knock is coming by, and you're quickly hopping in the car. Is that like what Doug was saying, where it's, it needs to be like a screened location, where it's like they're around this, and you, like you just make this corner, so so when they come by, you hop in, and it seems unlikely for them to think that car could have picked you up, or what, what, how does that right. work? No, exactly. So I would be concealed. I would be screened from anybody out there. If for some reason I missed the surveillance, then they would never see me hopping in the car and and taking off. Uh, and of course, my knock, he would be looking to make sure that we aren't being followed as well. And the timing has to be, you know, synchronized to where basically it's plus or minus a minute or so. So you've got to be, you know, judge it to where you get there, you get there on time, he or she gets there on time, and you've got it synchronized to where then, then you go away. Because the longer you're, you know, hanging around somewhere, you look too suspicious then the more you're going to draw surveillance or security, you know, security uh, folks on you. And and is the drop-off kind of the same or drop-offs different? No, it's the same. We want to make sure that you're dropped off, you know, somewhere where you're out of sight again. Um, I, I did a few car meetings. I actually preferred to have either a hotel room or a safe house somewhere where we could have more extensive conversations, totally out of sight. Um, now, sometimes you don't have time for that. You do what we call a brush pass. You'll meet somebody where it's concealed and you just walk by them and you switch briefcases, maybe identical briefcases, or you do something like that, or they hand you, you have both have a newspaper, except that his newspaper has got some classified information in it, and you go past one another, but out of the sight of any potential surveillance. So you emerge from one end of a an alley, he emerges from the other end, and you know, nobody would be the wiser. Now, I, I'll be I'll be candid with you. Doug London is much better at this than I am. He there are there are there are people who are wonderful street guys, and he was a consummate street guy. You know, my strength I I did I did that a lot. My strength was always the recruiting, the human side. If you put me after a target, I'm going to get the target. This this all makes so much sense. You know, like I think the movies love so much drama, or like. So many folks in fiction, espionage, like the drama, the fun, the, you know, you feel like in another world. And, and I remember Doug saying, like, you, you don't want to meet your source in a dark alley at two in the morning. Then you have to explain what you're doing in a right. dark alley at two in the morning with somebody you right. supposedly don't know or whatever. Right. Uh, like, I mean, the, the safe house makes tons of sense. What about hotel rooms? Like, Doug and I didn't talk about that. What are, like, what's complicated? What goes wrong? Like, what do you have to do to make sure that goes well? Okay, so I... I was maybe in a large city somewhere where I would meet a, uh, we would prearrange that the meeting would be, say, a large, uh, maybe 12 or 15-story hotel, and I would have the guy, not knowing which room I would be in, I would say, just meet me on the sixth floor near the elevator, you know, and I will then pass you the key, an extra key, or I'll tell you the room, and I'll go on up, and you come on up. Um, and that was, you know, we would do it in a large a large hotel. I might be registered an alias, so I don't see. I mean, I don't want to be in my true name if the local security service they know who I am. They don't want to see popping up. Well, Mister Lawler's over at the Hilton or at the uh, whatever you know, or the Waldorf Astoria. I don't want that. So I would maybe go in with an alias document and register an alias, and then uh, meet my source on a certain floor, and then we would go up, and we could be relaxed and and. I want to control the environment. Okay, so maybe 
like brush pass for the key on the sixth floor. I'll meet you upstairs kind of thing. Um, and are, are you getting upstairs ahead of them to make sure right, nothing, no funny yeah, business I've, is I've going already, on or what do you? Yeah, I've already gone up, made sure the room was okay. Um, you know, that I'm not under surveillance and have to, to trust that he's taken, you know, adequate precautions not to drag surveillance after him. And so then he would come up and, and meet with me. I never had anything go wrong. Actually, one time I almost had something go wrong. I was supposed to meet a, uh, a senior CIA officer in a certain hotel, and he was going to brief me on a sensitive operation. So I get there to the hotel. I know what room he's supposed to be in. He had contacted me to let me know that. And I knock on the door. Nothing. I knock again on the door. Nothing. Now, my concern was... This gentleman was in his, um, well, he was almost at retire. He was at retirement age and not in the best of health. And I'm thinking, my God, what if he's had a heart attack in there? How, what do I do? What am I going to tell people? You know, I've got to get, I've got, so I banged on the door a lot this time. Well, then he opens it and he had had the television on listening to some sports gang, game and he couldn't even hear me knocking on the door. But yeah, things like that go on all the time. Um <laughs> Which is now a risk of somebody else opening their door and seeing you guys together or... Yeah, I was I was a little perturbed that I had to make a racket on his door to get him to open the damn door, but I was really concerned that the guy might have had a seizure. Yeah. And, I mean, things happen. I mean, you know, you have enough okay. uh, operations going on and some guy's in his uh, 60s or something and who knows, he might have keeled over and then I'd have to get his body out of there or we'd have to, you know, call the police, do something. Yeah, what do you do to get a body out in a foreign country, especially with somebody that you don't be identified with? Well, yeah, you've got a problem is what you've got. Uh, actually, I pose that question. It's funny you bring it up. I pose it sometimes to young people who want to join the CIA, and I give them a hypothetical. And first, I've drilled in, into them the fact that your highest commitment is for your covert assets security. That is a sacred commitment that you always will protect your asset. Now, let's say you're in a meeting, just like I was in a hotel room, and let's say your asset starts to have a heart attack. What are you going to do? You can't call downstairs and say, my friend is having a heart attack or you, he's going to be identified you know, with you. And so I put that to them. And my solution, and I don't, I hate school solutions, but at least the one that I came up with, I said, look, Drag him out in the hall, drag him out in the hallway just a few feet down, and then go to the phone and say you just noticed this guy who collapsed just down the hallway from you, and then you check out of the hotel as quickly as you can and go and make sure that he or she is, you know, cared for. I mean, because we have we have to protect the lives of our people, but we don't want to get them in trouble at the same time. And that was the best I could come up with at the time was, you know, I just noticed this guy, he's collapsed on the floor. You need to get up here and call an ambulance. So, yeah, yeah. There's a million stories in the Naked City, and that was one of them. I loved your books, too, because it's so evident the level of mastery you you had at your game because it comes out in the stories. You know, I'm thinking about in your second book in, in Twinkling and I, when um, the, the one potential, the person who, who <laughs> they would like to recruit uh, he's giving all these objections and like, it's, it really is that like, how can you connect with the human? How can you build the trust? 
I think Doug called it sparring, like stop, pause, like reiterate or I can't remember what the R was, but like this, like where they have a legitimate concern, but we have to help them get over it. And, but we can't stray into force. It's like, it feels like a, it feels like a dance or something. Can you talk about that? Yeah, it is. I've had people, I had one guy one time, he said, well, what do you think I should do? I said, well, I think you should do it. <laughs> Work with me. <laughs> Some people just want to put the vision off. Now, and a lot of times we don't come out. Sometimes we don't come out and say, you know, I'm really a CIA officer and I want you to work with me. Sometimes we do. It depends on what we think is palatable for them. Sometimes it's best if they're giving us good intelligence. And I've been not using the three letters CIA, but I've been referring to my organization or I might call it, well, my agency, you know, and I don't really want to rub their nose in the fact that they're now a CIA asset. Uh, although sometimes that's a big draw because we are a very powerful organization. And I remember one, one guy I recruited and he says, can I get some training? And I said, sure, absolutely. You know, now well, let's he's, do your SDRs and keep me right. safe. Well, yeah, he wanted, he wanted SDR training and things like that. He wanted uh, clandestine tradecraft training, which was good because he was doing some dangerous things for us. And so he wanted, you know, to be part of the team and get the training. He was probably one of the best natural um, spies I ever recruited. He was a total natural. He, yeah, he just what had made him good? Good instincts. He was not foolish. He was, um, you know, he would show up on time and wherever, you know, he was absolutely rigorous in that. Great memory. If he was talking to somebody, he could give you a uh, really accurate feedback on what it was. If he was taking documents, you know, he, you know, he would do something but not foolish. And he also would listen to me for lessons because I said, I, my job is to keep you safe. You know, I'm, I'm the captain of this team here and I'm going to keep you safe. So he was, in fact, he was the guy that ultimately led in some respects to us being able years later to take down the AQCon nuclear weapons network. He was the guy that I had recruited earlier and it was kind of several iterations, but had he, had I not met him, the latter would never have occurred. So really? it's, and, know, and it, for people not familiar with that network, can you, you know, if they hadn't watched the news and stuff, can you give people just a quick background? Yeah. Okay. So Dr. A.Q. Khan was a uh, PhD metallurgist, a Pakistani metallurgist who had trained and been educated, gotten his doctorate in the Netherlands, and he had worked for a company that was a joint Dutch, British, and German company called Urenco, which stood for the Uranium Enrichment Corporation. Because with all the nuclear power plants in the world, there are, there's a big demand for lowly, low enriched uranium. This is uranium-235, which is enriched to about 3.5%, roughly. 35 3.7%. Not high enough, nearly high enough for a weapon, but you got to have the feedstock for basically the nuclear reactors that produce the power. It's a totally legitimate and very lucrative uh, industry. Well, the thing is, is if you use their method of enrichment, uranium enrichment, centrifuge enrichment, if you run that uranium hexafluoride gas a number of times through the centrifuge cascades, you can go from the 3.5% up to 85, 90%. So you get up to weapons grade. It just requires pumping that gas more, you know, times through the centrifuge cascade 
to where it continually enriches. It takes it from low enriched up to highly enriched uranium. And so he was uh, privy to very uh, guarded and proprietary designs for ultra centrifuges that are used in, in uh, uranium enrichment. Well, India had tested a nuclear weapon in the early 1970s. I can't recall if it was 70 or 71, but Pakistan was their mortal enemy. And President Bhutto of Pakistan had remarked, we will eat grass if we have to, but we're going to have a nuclear weapon. So Dr. Khan contacted, he was Pakistani, he contacts the folks in Islamabad in Pakistan and offers to bring these highly sensitive designs for ultra centrifuges to Pakistan so that Pakistan can have its own uranium enrichment effort. He does so. In fact, Dr. Khan was a highly charismatic individual. He had all these uh, Europeans that were friends of his that would supply him with uh, these restricted designs and components. And so he ups and moves back to Pakistan and forms a um, plant that initially was called the Engineering Research Laboratory. But ultimately, a few years later, it was renamed the Khan Research Laboratory in honor of him because he gave Pakistan the ability to enrich uranium up to weapons grade, which then led them to be able to have their own nuclear weapons program. And he was doing that for Pakistan. Okay, that was troubling enough that Pakistan was now manufacturing nuclear weapons right next door to India, which had its own nuclear weapons. But to make things much worse, because there was an operation that I led, uh, we became aware that he personally, Dr. Khan personally, was now peddling those designs for those centrifuges for uranium enrichment to the Libyans. Now, Libya, if you recall at the time, back in the late 1990s, was a state sponsor of terrorism. So this was the sum of all fears that Libya, with that maniac Gaddafi, would develop nuclear weapons and have these, you know, and so it, the operation that I led basically penetrated the Khan network, and then we brought it down. And um, for people not familiar, which terrorist groups was Gaddafi most supportive of? Actually, his own. He was not a fan of al-Qaeda. But that's, yeah. mistake. that's a mistake. He, he was not. But he would dally with a lot of European terrorist groups like the uh, Irish Republican Army, like the uh, Red Brigades. Um, there were a number of— Bader Meinhof, absolutely. And in fact, his Libyan intelligence agencies, they're the ones that were responsible for the bombing or for the destruction of Pan Am 103 that killed a lot of Americans and a number of people in Scotland. They had blown up some um, a disco in Berlin. He had his own, uh, you know, and Libyan intelligence officers who were terrorists. So it was state terrorism. But no, he was not a fan of al-Qaeda, those groups. He had his own terrorist groups and giving support to European terrorist groups. I think maybe the next subject I'd like to talk about is you think about your specialty, the, the human aspect of all of this. What do you think that you did that not all case officers did? Like what what did you put in the extra work for that maybe wasn't as common? OK, well, there's a number. I have actually a uh, courses that I teach on this and I have one uh, slide where I talk about the uh, 10 secrets to good recruiting and there's a number of them, but I'll just list a few here. For one thing, to be an extremely good listener, 
You don't recruit people when you're in transmit mode. You recruit people when you're listening and are patient. And, you know, I'm a slight extrovert. Typically, good recruiters are either slight extroverts or slight introverts. Um, I have two brothers. One of them is an extreme introvert. He won't talk to you. And my other brother is an extreme extrovert. He'll suck the oxygen out of the room. And he kind of intimidates people. I'm in the middle. I'm just, I can come, I can go either way, slight extrovert, slight introvert. So being a good listener, uh, understanding people's stress. One of my talents, I think, was I could recognize stress, stress in people. I used to be a rock climber and I asked my students sometimes, okay, if you're a rock climber, how do you climb the rock? And the answer is, is you look for the crack systems so that you can put your fingers and toes in the cracks and go up the rock. You can't climb smooth rock unless you're a fly or a lizard. You, know, you have to look for the cracks. And people are like that. If you study people long enough, you'll find the crack systems in people. What the stress like what's an example? Okay, the stress may be uh, their marriage. The stress may be they hate their boss. I've recruited people who, unbeknownst to me, you know, the reason I was able to recruit them was because absolutely despised their boss. The boss was taking credit for everything they did, and they just couldn't stand it. And that was their way of getting back. For our for Child Rescue Association, we're, we're, we're doing this fundraiser now to, to pay for some intelligence folks to, to teach this to cops. For the officers, as they're thinking about this, you know, they want to recruit somebody high level in one of these criminal organizations that's selling kids. You know, they're probably, you know, one of the large gangs or cartels or the Hells Angels or the who knows, right? One of these groups probably selling drugs and kids. And um, as they're thinking about who to recruit and they want to recruit somebody high enough up that they know where the bodies are buried. They know where all the money comes to and goes from or, you know, like these kind of things, mm -hmm. right? Um, you know. Is it is it different? You think the principles are pretty much exactly the same? Like, how do they spot stress in someone high up in a criminal organization instead of in an embassy? Well, looking for someone who's disaffected. We used to set up, uh, let's say we're across from a Russian embassy. And at quitting time, we'd see three or four Russians come out, all headed off to a bar somewhere. And maybe about three or four minutes later, one guy would come out all all by himself well, guess who we're going after? We're going after the one who's the straggler, the person who doesn't quite fit in. So if you can look for someone who doesn't fit in to the team, then that's the person to go after. Or somebody who's pissed off because the head of the gang might have uh, intimidated him, might have slighted him, and uh, embarrassed him in front of, you know how embarrassment is a horrible thing. Embarrassing him in front of the others and if they've got a wiretap or a teltap set up or an audio operation where they can tell that this one guy's being humiliated, uh, in fact, you may recall in my my book, you know, one guy, he's been humiliated and he can't stand it, you know, his boss. He, and that's why he ends up, well, basically F you. And he's, you know, so angry, he then goes out of revenge to the, to the CIA. And so that's a, that's a powerful factor. Another is empathy in a, in a case officer. You have to be able to put, if I want to recruit you, Jess, I've got to know what's inside your head and I've got to be able to empathize, know exactly what it is that makes you tick. And so listening to people, understanding if they've got a problem, maybe there's a member of a gang that has a child that needs some medical attention, you know, or they, the 
person may be uh, somehow on the outs with folks. And so he's got a um, something, you know, a real grudge. Recruiting somebody who's got a grudge is is great. I've recruited a number of people, you know, who are going through this. They've got some kind of grudge going on. Uh, And then I like to say that um, you asked about a good case officer versus maybe a mediocre case officer. I give examples of this. You have to be able to know that not every pitch that you give is going to be accepted. In fact, if you're afraid of being turned down, and if you've never been turned down, you haven't pitched enough people because you have to constantly probe what you think is is possible. And it's like if you're a card player and you you bluff, but you've never had your bluff called, you haven't bluffed enough. You need to keep keep to where you un, kind of know what your limits are. And then the other reason... You know, what, do you, what do you think a good closing ratio is for a recruiter? Well, mine was over 90%. Wow. So, some maybe north of that. In fact, in the latter years, it was probably close to a hundred percent. What what about and, and for you, early? you know you you know you know kind of how this is going to go. Early on, it was probably more in the range of um, maybe sixty or seventy percent. Uh, and then I, I had one guy; he turned me down, but he said, "Well, uh, can I have a rain check?" <laughs> I said, "What?" He said, "Yeah." He said, "You know, my son; he's three years old now, and I don't need you. But in fifteen years, he'll be college age, and then I might need you." So I wrote that up. Fifteen years later, he's posted to the United States, and the division, the area division from his that covered his country, they said, "Your buddy said this way back fifteen years ago. Do you think he meant it?" I said, "Yeah, knowing him, he meant it." Well, guess what? We cashed that rain check in. Fifteen years later. No, I'm not kidding. <laughs> uh, so it's, you know, and then the other reason people sometimes aren't successful case officers is if they're afraid of offending the person, you know, where the guy says, well, Jim, you mean that's what, why we're friends that you really wanted me to do this, you know, and that they would storm out. Well, that's a chance you've got to take. You've got to be able to close the deal. And there are some case officers who just are afraid of offending someone or afraid of being turned down. And they're afraid to pop the question. Now you can, you can pop the question and get turned down like I did in my, actually the very first case I had, I got turned down. The guy said, well, Jim, I couldn't do that. That's, uh, you know, that's, uh, that would be against my morality. And so I backed off and then I started, I started worrying that he was going to report me to his ambassador because we have a saying at CIA, it's okay to get turned down, but not turned in. Meaning if his ambassador uh, you know, heard that I had just propositioned, actually it was the deputy uh, number two in the embassy, I'd propositioned number two to commit treason, he would have stormed into our ambassador's office and made a huge diplomatic uh, explosion. And so I called him a few days later just to see if he was okay and that how we were still friends, thinking I've got to take his temperature. Well, I said, I thought maybe we might go out again because I enjoyed our evening the other night. He said, Jim, you know, I was thinking the same thing. So I go to the second meeting, the one just not even a week after I had propositioned this guy to commit espionage, first words out of his mouth, Jim, that offer you made me last Friday, is that still good? I said, yeah, we're friends. That's why I made you the offer. And he says, well, look, I know it's morally wrong, but my wife just announced that she wants a divorce. 
and I can't afford to pay her the alimony to which she's entitled and finance my two teenage boys' private schools next year when I go home because in my country, they aren't going to get an education worth a damn unless they go to a private school. He said, I've got to, I've got to take your offer, even though it's morally wrong. And fortunately, I didn't get into an argument about the morality of it, uh, but we got, he was wonderful. He was fabulous. And then I learned that he hated his boss. His ambassador was taking credit for everything he did. And there were all kinds of reasons. There's never a single reason why people do this. It's usually a whole mosaic of reasons. Well, I, I'm loving this top 10 list. What are another couple on the, the recruiter top 10 list? Okay. Uh, one that's not well understood is what I call the metaphysics. And I mentioned that in my first book. I'm not sure if I have it much in the second book, but certainly in the first book. To me, a top-class recruiter is someone who can somehow metaphysically link with the target. And it's like intense eye contact. And I always imagine that there's literally like a probe going out from me to you and pulling you in. And this, this was... Um, in one chapter called The Magic of Tradecraft in Living Lies, where Lane is talking to two neuroscientists, and he gets into this this thing, and they don't believe him. In fact, they wanted him to discuss magic, meaning trickery or deception. And he says, I don't trick people. I don't deceive people. But he says, I have this ability to somehow neurologically to link up with people and get them to do what I want. And I turn that the metaphysics. Well, these two neuroscientists are highly skeptical of this. And and then Lane says, so the science of neuro, our neuroscience is a complete science. You understand everything? They said, well, no. They said, well, okay. What if you were in 1880 and you saw an airplane go over? What would you think that was? You'd probably think it was magic. But 20 years later, 23 years later, the Wright brothers were able to fly an airplane. And so... It's not the, okay. So I have a comment about this. Yeah, and I want your feedback because um, well, I was teaching leadership training classes over at the Defense Intelligence Agency. Well, it was actually Intelligence Security Command folks of the Army, and uh, we had this crossover there. I we had this conversation because I'd heard so many people saying like, "You can't care about your mark like a person. You need to you need to objectify them so that you can." So you can do these things and not care about them too much. And I had this conversation with a couple of, of guys kind of going from the opposite direction of like, you know, do you think it's possible to really care about them like a true human to human way and still have those hard things of like, maybe you aren't sharing your real identity. And like, can you be honest that there's other people you're responsible to? Like you told your wife you were going to come home after this tour of duty, right? And so there's... Maybe you do want to share with them who you really are, but it's just not safe to. But that doesn't mean you have to objectify them. You can still connect with them at a deep human level and care about them. Uh, I mean, they feel like opposed things, but like to me, that that empathy or that deep care might relate to what you're talking about on the metaphysic. Is that any anywhere close? It it does to an extent. I mean, sure, I handled a lot of my assets in an alias. Well, okay, but that was for my protection, their protection, so that. They didn't know what my true name was, but I don't think that doesn't have anything to do with the relationship. I really put their security number one in my book, and I did care for them. Now, not everybody I recruited is someone that, and under other circumstances, would be my friend. 
But what I was able to do was always find at least one or two redeeming features about somebody that I could hook onto and why they are the way they are. And then like, I- What's an example? Well, they might have, I mean, I've done this with people that I've had fellow, you know, colleagues that some of these people, some people, you know, be it one of my colleagues or an asset could be just egotistical, arrogant, whatever. And so you, you kind of flatter them a little bit and you get close to them. And then you find out this guy doesn't have many friends, you know, and, and the reason he doesn't have many friends is because he's a jerk, but I was his friend. and so. They liked the fact that I would be their friend, even though they were a jerk and a jackass. Now, would I ordinarily spend time with people like that? No, but I needed to, you know, and then, boy, I tell you, once you become their friend, then, man, they could do anything for you. They, you know, they will treat you right. So I don't know if they'd been mistreated by their father or their mother or what, but, you know, these people were messed up somehow and were treating people like dirt, but I would persist and tolerate their, you know, BS, frankly. And then, man, you, you, they saw that you were sticking with them and perhaps they had been betrayed by, by their parents. I don't know, you know, I don't know psychologically what it, what it was that caused them to be the way they are, but I would, I knew that I had to subordinate my own, my own feelings towards them and find something redeeming in them that where I could motivate them to become a spy that works for me. Um, so, but that doesn't really relate to what I'm talking about. The metaphysics, the metaphysics is simply an inexplicable principle where a top-class recruiter can somehow convince somebody to do something that they ordinarily wouldn't do. A, a good student of mine, one of our knock officers, he said, Jim, you may not know this, but unconsciously, perhaps, you're using the same techniques that Dr. Milton Erickson who developed hypnotherapy back in the 60s and 70s used. And he says the tone of voice, the, the uh, cadence, your ability, your listening ability, your therapeutic approach to things. And then finally, it's like a hypnosis. And I had one of my assets said, Jim, when I'm listening to you, it's like my brain is in a warm water bed. And I, and I feel like I can tell you anything. And I said, yeah, that's exactly what I want. So it's not really, not really hypnosis, but it's something that I'm able to convince people to do these things. And again, I, I just have this imaginary link, calming nature. I'm not a physically imposing person. My voice is fairly, uh, fairly uh, mellow and it just soothes them and they feel like they can tell me anything. So I get them in the mood. I mean, it's a lot like romance in a sense. And I get them in the mood and then they're telling me they're, everything. They're pouring out their heart to me because I will listen and empathize. And, but ultimately, the, the metaphysics is something just, it's like watching a gifted athlete who's running and in that last 50 yards or so, they go into their kick and it just becomes a blur. And if you watch a top-class case officer, I mean the top 1% or 2%, like Lane Andrews in my book, when you watch them or listen to them, they're bending time and space. They are actually doing what is impossible. They're getting this person to do things that they ordinarily wouldn't do. What do you think that those top 1% or 2%, what are they doing to achieve that level of mastery? Well, they're confident. 
confidence is a big thing. Uh, we interviewed a uh, KGB defector one time and asked him, how could we recruit more people like you? And he says, well, first you have to be, and he said it in Russian, which I, I'm going to mispronounce it, but he says a seriosnichilovek, which is a serious person, because I have to trust you not only with my freedom, but with my life, because in my country, they'll put a bullet in the back of my head in the Lubyanka. And he says, I have, you have to be a serious person. And I have to perceive that, that you are a serious person. You take this seriously. Your tradecraft is top class and that you have my best interests at heart. So being a serious person and not some, you know, scatterbrain, you show up on time, you, you take this seriously and you're passionate about it. Um, there's, there's other things too. The, um, not being, not pushing people and, and not lying to people. Sometimes people say, well, CIA officers are trained liars. Not really. I don't, I don't lie to people. I may not tell them a hundred percent of what's going on, but if they said to me, Jim, can you guarantee my safety? I'm not going to lie. I'll say, if you follow what I advise you to do, we will do our damnedest to keep you safe and we will go to hell and back to protect you. And we will, we will do that. This is a commitment that I make. I make it on the behalf of the Director of Central Intelligence, on behalf of the United States of America. And if I give you my guarantee, we're going to get you out of trouble. And if you noticed in my book, well, actually both my books, the agent, the agent is in trouble. And in both times, CIA on one hand, FBI on the other, they go to hell and back to get those people out of trouble. And that's a sacred commitment. Well, I, I feel like that's like a recruiter masterclass just with that Russian you know, that ex-KGB officer said, like, you know, right. can somebody check that list? You know, I love it. What's, what's another one on the list? Let's see. We've covered empathy, covered listening, covered, oh, creativity. Creativity, having, you know, being creative, being flexible, um, not, not pushing people be too fast, too far, too fast. You know, don't come out of a meeting thinking, I've got to recruit this person the next meeting. Being persistent, I uh, pitched a uh, Eastern European case officer. He was an Eastern European intelligence officer towards the end of the Cold War. And I could tell he was struggling with it, that he was thinking about it. He never said no, but he never said yes. And then I was moving within a couple of weeks to another assignment. And my big mistake was I didn't go back to him and say, Yuri or Ola, you know, Igor or whatever his name was. Okay, look. You need to make a decision. Your country's falling apart. I can be your rescue. I could be your lifeline. And I didn't do that. So I wasn't persistent. And again, not taking no for an answer, you know, knowing that people, everybody is recruitable at some point, given enough stress. And if your timing is just right and you sense that timing is right, it could have been no a few days earlier, like my friend who turned me down. But then it was suddenly yes. And so being persistent is, is a big part of it. I'm trying to think what else there was. It's a list of about 10 things. And to me, being able to read people, you know, again, empathy, but reading people, understanding, caring for people. That's, that's a big thing is caring for people. Yeah. What else is involved in reading people as you define it? You know, noticing what their small talk is about, noticing how they treat other people. How do they treat their family? Now, Am I going to recruit a wife beater? Probably not 
knowingly, but uh, or certainly not somebody who treats his children poorly as a, as a child abuser. Um, but you know, seeing how they treat other people and how they've been treated, getting some family history, listening to people pour out their heart to you about all their tr troubles and things. Um, whether you think this person is uh, since a truth teller or a liar. Now, if they make a little petty lie, like if they tell you that they were late to a meeting because of traffic and you know they were just not watching the watch, you know, okay, fine. I'm not going to, I'm not going to terminate the relationship just because you're 20 minutes late and because you took your time getting there. Uh, but I want to, you know, we, we use various techniques to verify whether people are being truthful or not. And being truthful is a big thing to me. Being, again, trust. I want to be able to trust the person. Is this person trustworthy? Uh, one time, uh, this was a un, unannounced little uh, test, but I was paying a safe housekeeper. You know, we have people that actually own a place where we, they vacate for maybe a few hours while we borrow their apartment. Well, I was giving him some money for his uh, rent because we pay the rent a lot of times in his places. And I had mistakenly, the, the bills were very crisp, and I had given him instead of 500, the, the equivalent of $500, I'd given him $600. Just, you know, stupidly, I'd given him 600 So I'm going away, and after about two or three minutes, I hear him calling my name, and I turn around and look, and he comes in and he says, you gave me too much. And he gave me back the extra $100, and I thought, this guy's an honest guy. I would have never known the difference. It was an inadvertent test. So being being honest, you know, that that's a big thing to me. Building that building that trust. Yeah. Well, speaking of safe houses, you know, let's go let's go back to my example of the law enforcement. You know, they're somebody from the gang or whatever, you know, whatever organization it is that's that's renting out kids, right? And they've done the assessment. They've done the bump, they're they're getting together, and now for whatever reason they realize that oh, we need to do this at a safe house next. What does the cop need to think about of like where in the city or what kind of building? Or like what are a couple of the elements he needs to think of in in choosing a good safe house? Well, he's gotta have his his buddies nearby and, and hopefully he's wearing a wire or something. If he's in if he's undercover, he could be in danger. Uh he has to have that. He has to look for easy egress and ingress, look you know, what how how what is this neighborhood like you know the complexion of the neighborhood the uh, the uh, streets around it things like that um i mean i'm not a cop so i i don't know but you know that's a that's the kind of business where you could end up dead if they detect that you're really undercover or or what if you're not undercover you know you made your pitch you're mm -hmm. not undercover anymore but you just need you just need a, a good safe house for this source to meet you at you know, like I'm guessing, like, you know, he probably wanted a neighborhood that his associates aren't normally hanging out in. Right. Um, but that he's got an excuse for that be being in that part of town or there's there's, you know, he can drive away from the house this way. I can drive away from the house that way. Or like, well, what are I'm just making stuff up. But well, OK, in, in this case, since it's just for a short term, it probably is going to be a hotel or a motel room. Um, and if if the police officer is a woman and the. um under the uh, criminal, the the asset is a man. It looks like they're having a, a, an affair. Well, that's okay. That's understandable. Uh, but 
you know, probably a uh, hotel or motel that's not close to where his gang hangs out. And, uh, and so basically the police officer needs to go over with the asset. Where do your people hang out? Where are they? Where are you unlikely to be seen to make sure that the uh, surroundings are secure? And, you know, the, you know, you don't want to, you don't want to jeopardize the asset. How do you think of a cover for them to be in that part of town or, you know, like if they did get spotted or something? Well, they need to have a cut. We used to rehearse cover stories with our assets. You know, we have to have a cover for action, a cover for why you're here. So, you know, I'm your cousin from out of town. You were coming over to give me something, some, some pretext story that we can both, you know, we would rehearse these cover stories with our assets so that if we were seen, you'd have, you didn't have to scratch your head and look like Bambi in the headlights. You could actually say, well, no, I was meeting this guy. Um, you know, of course the best thing is not to be seen, but at least you have a cover story, some backup story that uh, explains why you might be going to a, some strange hotel or motel. And when you said probably hotel or motel, is it because a safe house is something you're going to be using long-term? It could or be. Or you're going to be meeting there repeatedly over the next few years or something? Well, not years, but we would, you know, I, again, I would usually recruit somebody as a safe house keeper. It could have been a student. It could have been, uh, you know, a college student or somebody in graduate school, or it could have been a, another person who would then vacate the apartment on a given day. I'd say, I want to use it between, say, 7 and 10 o'clock, and therefore, you know, you be gone. And I pay the rent. It's a good deal. And it's non-taxable income for the the uh, safe housekeeper. Uh, I mean, I, I've got people that I've done this with. Man, it's a sweet deal for them. They just have to be gone maybe one day a month and they get free rent. And I've got a, uh, you know, a safe house where I can securely meet the asset. Yeah. Well, um, I want to keep talking all day, but maybe we should just have you back on the show. Tell, tell me this, like, as you're now venturing into your third fiction novel here yes um i imagine it's it's got to be fun to like to translate what you've got to this fiction world where so many people will get to enjoy it you know because there's so many things you probably have never been able to say over the years and now there's like you get to dance with it a little bit and you get to get people like me who become super fans well thank you i well i'm able to tell stuff that you know doug was able to write memoirs and i didn't want to write memoirs and so I took a lot of the things that actually happened in my career and I fictionalized them somewhat so I can then give a story, but just put it in a different setting, put it with a different nationality and uh, come up with a, um, you know, creative storyline, which I hope is entertaining. It's going to be realistic. Both my, both my books, I think, are about 99.9% .9 realistic. The only thing that's an exaggeration frequently is the time scale. Because you, if you made it like a real intelligence operation, it could drag and drag and drag and drag and drag, and you would lose readers really quickly. Real intelligence operation can drag for months and months and months, and then in a hypersecond, a nanosecond, it's like warp speed. And so you can't do it like that. So you've got to, you've got to uh, basically shorten the time scale somewhat to where... It's more entertainment than, than realism in that respect. But I'd say 99.9% .9 of the events in both my novels are things that either 
are plausible or they actually happened to me. There's a number of scenes in books where they actually, I, this, is, this is just a replay of a scene that actually happened. And, and then I included people, good friends of mine, as some of the main characters because I really respect and admire these people. I have a, a good friend, Paula Doyle. She's a wonderful CIA, was a CIA case officer. She's the model for Paula Davenport, who is director of operations in both the novels. The head of counterintelligence is uh, named Brian Bannock. He's based on my good friend, Scott Stewart, one of the best sea counterintelligence officers we've ever had. And both of them met with me and told me all about you know, what it was like in their life. And I guaranteed them one thing. I said, you'll be a good guy. You won't be one of the bad guys. <laughs> Didn't you tell me you let Scott pick his own name? Yes, I did. Yes, I did. I let him. And he is a proud Scott. Scott is a Scott. And uh, and so he likes Brian Bannock. And boy, he, and he looks just like the character I described in the book. He looks like Ernest Hemingway. He actually, in the second book, I've got him playing um, Santa Claus at Christmas. He actually does that. He does. He plays Santa Claus at Christmas. And he's a, a, a wonderful man and an absolutely top-class counterintelligence officer. They have The counterintelligence officers tend to get a bum rush because they're usually the, the um, sour note at the party because they'll tell you what's wrong with something. And uh, it's almost always bad news. In fact, I knew the head of counterintelligence at CIA, and I met him in the hall one day, and this guy said, I live in a world of heartbreak. <laughs> and, but Scott, Scott was, was broad-minded enough to take a holistic approach to operations. And he would point out, yeah, you've got a weakness here, but here's the strengths. So on balance, you know, this is a good operation. I do feel like it's probably the best depiction in fiction that I know of, of really great offensive CI, like offensive counterintelligence. And I think that like the media doesn't cover that as much, but to me, that was a great example of like, counter, like offensive counterintelligence. Well, in my third book, The Traitor's Tale, that I'm writing right now, it really gets into offensive counterintelligence. And so I'm going to depend on Scott. Scott's, again, Brian Bannock, his avatar, is again going to be a, is a major figure in this third book because we've got a situation where a CIA officer an African-American case officer who's an excellent case officer has been falsely accused of being a mole, and he is cast into outer darkness. He's shunned by most of the other CIA officers. Only a few remain his friend, and he goes through this hell for almost a year when he's finally exonerated, and then he decides, to hell with them. I'm going to do it. So... He starts to work with the Russians, and we find out, where is it? What's going on? And then Brian Bannock is in the background kind of watching this whole thing because he knows they've got a problem, a big problem. We're losing our assets, and he's got to sniff out who the mole is, who's the traitor. Uh, and you think that one will be out maybe by summer 2023? Put some pressure on me, Jess, and I'll, I'll do it. <laughs> You need to send a 300-pound guy with a baseball bat over here and make me write those, <laughs> those books, write those pages. No, I already told you. you got to read The War of Art by Stephen Pressfield, yeah. Deep Work by Cal Newport. It'll help. Yeah. yeah. I, I hope to have that. I, I need to set myself a deadline and stick to it. Yes, you're right. Well, listen, let's plan on having you back on the show. This is so sure. nice of you to spend so much time. And, uh, and you know, from me, 
like I'm an American born abroad, uh, American citizen, born in Canada. And uh, I love the US. I think if you're willing to take personal responsibility for yourself, like there's no better country in the world for your past doesn't have to determine your future. Like, I just think this place is amazing. It actually drives me nuts. Uh, all sorts of Americans who complain about America, like we're not perfect, but I mean, like, look at who else wants to run the world, Iran, North Korea, Russia, China, like <laughs> one of these things is not the same. You know what I mean? And, well, and uh, I look at. Absolutely. And there's much more uh, upward social mobility in the United States than there is. And even in Europe, I mean, it's uh, when we lived in Europe for 12 years, you know, you were born into a certain class. You basically stayed in that class. And that's not true in the United States. It's, I think, much more of a meritocracy. I look at the way of life that I get to live, the, the safety for my kids. And it's people like you who go spend 25 years or more in all sorts of far-flung places doing the hard things, the, the dicey things, the put-your-life-on-the-line things. And I just want to say I appreciate you. So thanks for well, doing that. Thank you, Jess. I appreciate, I appreciate what you just said very much. And I know my colleagues do, too. Thanks again for doing this, and, and uh, thanks, everybody, for listening in. My pleasure. Bye, everyone.